This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast episode. I've got a really unique guest today, Lucia Dore from New Zealand, and she's a financial journalist. She's an editor, author, and documentary maker. And today is all about the creative side and the skills needed to be a good communicator, both in written, both in uh, film form. We're going to talk all of all things, you know, Israel-Gaza war, uh, female entrepreneurship. Uh, nothing's going to be AI. Nothing's going to be left off the table. So I'm really happy to welcome Lucia to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Christopher. Yeah, kind of set the ground stage of uh, your background, your journey. And, um, you know, I'm really excited to, you know, dive into your way of thinking, your mindset, how you view the world. Well, I'm from Southland, New Zealand, which is at the very bottom of the world, if you like. <laughs> the next stop is Stuart Island, Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> so I went from there and I was very... Um, focused on economics and politics. So I went first to the New Zealand Treasury, where I was an economist, and I used to forecast inflation and things like that. When I was there, I was born in a place called Lumsden, which is military, which is the year before Bill English, who was New Zealand Prime Minister, so it must be an okay place. And, and then after that, I went to journalism school. I won a scholarship. I went to the UK, and I was there for 18 and a half years. And I was editing a lot of financial magazines, and um, I did technology and finance. And then... I, for my sins, went to the Middle East, and I was a journalist there. I was head of a newswire service, which focused really on M and A, um, which is part of the Financial Times Group for eight and a half years. And I spent there. Now, what is interesting, although I say M and A is all about families and who you know and what they do and connections and all the rest of it, and I had. Well, not always a straightforward time in the Middle East for a whole lot of reasons. And then from there, I went to New back to New Zealand and I made a documentary. In my first year, I was a master's course I was doing at um, Canterbury. And I made a documentary on refugees, which is now coming true. It was before refugees were really a fashion. They became a fashion about two years later. Um, and it was New Zealand's response to the refugee crisis, which really hasn't changed a lot. And under the current government, it won't. 
at all. And then when I was in Queenstown for a while, and then I, I've moved to Dunedin, I moved up to Dunedin, and I've bought a place up here. It's more, and I wrote a book last year, Seniority, the relationship with AI and technology. And I'm fact writing another book about my story and my journey. Um, but I don't think it's particularly easy for a female. I think, you know, there are lots of things, but that's really, you know, in a nutshell, where I am now. So I've been all over and and I was in Vietnam and uh, teaching English in 2019. So I have an online business English course as well, which came out of that too. Yeah, so. I love that. We, you know, we'll, first we'll dive into kind of your career and kind of sounds like you're a very successful uh, journalist and, uh, and it sounds like the underlying theme of being a good journalist is kind of getting getting a good story and then uh, communicating. So um, what, what one question is, what are the best ways to communicate and key attributes you need to be a commu good communicator, both in your career and your personal life? Well, I think being a good communicator is listening. I think it's more about listening uh -huh. than talking. You have to communicate what you think, but you have to listen to what the person says and responds and I think the almost the art of listening is disappearing as people get caught up in social media so you don't listen as much and you see that even on television the journalists um, tend not to listen to the answers they just have prepared questions that they want to answer and that is a problem. I also, in the UK, I, in fact, I helped set up a communication company, which really focused on presentation skills, you know, presentation skills and, you know, communicating your message. And it's, it, I really think it's about listening and it's being able to be powerful in what you, you have to believe in something and be powerful in communicating that. They are the two things I would say. And as a journalist, Yes, you have to have a good story and you have to communicate it, but you have to communicate it well. It has to be readable. So shorter sentences are better than longer ones. Don't use complicated words if you don't have to. Don't make it more complicated than you need to. And often people do want to make it complicated because it, it makes them feel as though they know a lot more. Well, <laughs> that's not the way life is, I'm afraid. Yeah. You yeah. have to listen. Yeah, I love that. I love it. It's kind of counterintuitive because you think, you know, to be a good communicator, you have to be eloquent and uh, gregarious and extroverted and, you know, everybody's listening to you. But it's quite interesting that you said um, that uh, to be a good uh, listener. Um, so Yeah, I think you have to be all of the things that you said when you're yeah. communicating, but you do have to listen because the, the other people want to say something too and you respond to what they say, you know. That, that, that's the way it is. And I suppose I learned that particularly because in the Middle East, you have to listen <laughs> to what people say, <laughs> men principally, um, and you respond to that. And then they have their ideas of you. So you just continue to let them think that. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, so we'll kind of break it down because you you um, you have these two key themes in your um, which I find fascinating. And the first is um, senior citizens and technological adaptation. And in your book, um, seniority, I'm not sure if I, um, but um, seniority, yeah, oh yeah, seniority. <laughs> but 
And you talk about how AI and tech can enhance senior living and what key insights did you discover about relationship between seniors, emerging technologies, AI, and how these insights improve tech design? Well, I think that we found out that certainly um, people may not like technology because they don't know it, because they think that they're bad at it. But in fact, lots of people are bad at it. Younger people, it's hard to keep up with changes. And therefore, they feel uncomfortable. And if they want to be taught, they prefer being taught by their relations. But that isn't necessarily the most effective. So they need to know that they use technology and AI every day, particularly in the kitchen, whether it's heating or ovens or something. So it's not necessarily computers. And with healthcare, I mean, it's come such a long way. Something can be wrong, but the system can pick it all up much better now as a result of using AI. Oh. And I think as people, somebody said to me that they noticed that over the last few years, the older people are becoming more accepting of technology and AI because it's being used for more social good like climate change. And I thought that was quite interesting. That was the one thing. And then we noticed how much it was used. It's used for wealth, for accumulation of wealth, although that we also discovered there's a lot of discrimination with ageism. They talk about ageism as being young, but ageism can be old too. Yeah. Um, so I think all that is hugely different, and that's what's changed. Yeah, so I'm trying to think what other things there were. There was health, wealth. Really, that's sort of then the key find. We also found that people didn't embrace technology and they, just because they have an aversion to it, which is quite bizarre. I, I use the example of my mother, who was 80, and she wouldn't use internet banking at all. <laughs> and she would have to go into the bank and, oh, what a hassle. And yet my father, who was 87, embraced it and did everything online. <laughs> so there isn't necessarily, and yet I have a case study from a 92-year-old who won't touch technology. And that is because she thinks it's bad. I think they have to be convinced that you can't. There isn't more fraud created because of technology. In fact, probably less fraud and things like that. But I think... There's just a lot more teaching and a lot more convincing that they have to go in for some people. That's what we learned. There was such a contrast. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I um, I haven't walked into a bank, you know, for almost more than 20 years now. Um, and just the thought of it just is just very foreign, you know, it's like kind of like just where you can do everything away. And, um, and but, you know, like, for example, my parents, they just recently... Um, canceled their landline so they've had a landline for all you know i haven't had a landline since like 2002 so um, exactly kind of moving on is this idea of um because you've uh, you know this whole thing with the middle east with uh, israel and gaza and um or israel and palestine and then you've um and as an entrepreneur launching media company focused on disruptive technology and middle eastern politics what are the most significant well what was interesting for me is that, okay, I was in the Middle East and I'd been to Israel and Palestine and I was head of, as I say, I was head of a newswire service. So what I found interesting is I wrote my story 
um, and stuff that happened to me with guns and the rest of it. And it was from the Israeli side, not the Palestinian. Um, and I was locked in. It was when the Turkish flotilla had been caught um, and, and not on the Mediterranean. So the Israelis were on high alert and I was being shut into the wall, you know, the walls that come down. And I think, oh, and I asked the way out and they just pointed a gun at me. And I thought, oh, I can't deal with this. I really couldn't deal with that. And I, what happened is that because I had been in Israel and Palestine, but I'd also been, I had to be very careful going in. I had gone in with a group of Palestinians as well, that my um, passport wasn't marked because at that stage there was no communication with the Arab countries with Israel. I couldn't even telephone. You know, it, it just wouldn't answer because there was no connection because the Arab countries didn't recognise Israel. And so I found it quite interesting from that. And then when I posted on Facebook and LinkedIn, I had various people saying that it was edited Mm. because it wasn't the narrative that they wanted. It was my experience and it was what happened to me. So it's interesting that even that proved unpalatable in in some regions. Of course, I come from, I was living in Arab countries and I had to, um, what's the word, I had to conform to what was required. But it's interesting that in those countries, the Westerners are generally paid more, but they give women more status if they wear an abaya and hijab and the rest of it is, you know, quite contrary to what you think. Mm. So you just, you know, I had a really, I, I think it was hugely informative and it was hugely informative the few days, the week that I spent in East Bethlehem going into Jerusalem at a time when the country was on high alert. So I hate to think what is now. It's also been interesting because when I came back to New Zealand, I did interview the director of health of UNRWA, who was a Palestinian refugee, and I'll put that up. And I've been trying to speak to him again. And the day that I had organised to speak with him recently, he had to fly to Egypt to Rafa crossing or all the rest of it. And about 100 people have now, from the UN, have now been killed mm. doing that. And I keep thinking I don't hear from him. I'm thinking, oh, he's dead. He commented. He came back to me the other day and said, oh, it's just dire and I'm so sorry it's been so long. But he's he can't do anything. He's just working all the time to try and sort this situation out with the Palestinian refugees, which is why he was involved in the first He's Japanese. So I think that I just learned a lot and I was more aware of the history. What shocks me is that people don't know what the history is behind these countries, what is happening. And they almost, I think a lot of people think the history has started from October the 7th. Mm-hmm. It hasn't. You know, it's gone on for centuries, yeah. decades and centuries. And Britain... And France have a lot to do with it as well. 
things were what the tactics that the Palestinians are using are the tactics that the British used when they created Israel in 48. So, you know, well, when they were creating Israel in the 30s. Um, but, you know, the tactics come back to the West. And I think that's what you sort of, you appreciate lots of things that don't happen. I think I learned a great deal there about just about how you have to react to different cultures and you don't, you don't often realize that you have to do so much for other cultures. Like in New Zealand, a good example is um, in New Zealand, people tattoo. People believe, you know, in Polynesia, everybody gets tattoos. And in New Zealand, everybody's got tattoos. And they think it's all fine. But it's not fine in places like Japan or the Middle East. Um, I think people have to be conscious of what is acceptable and what is not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I say. And, you know, and as a, as somebody, I'm writing about all that now. In fact, I've got a, I am writing another book, but, and that, is obviously part of it. I mean, censorship definitely comes into it, mm-hmm. particularly in that part of the world. But then censorship is happening all over the world now. Yeah. What you can and cannot write, what's woke, what's not, you know. And who's to say, is it an individual should make up their mind or should governments? But in those places, you get used to censorship and you get told what you can and cannot write. And I was tapped many times on the phone. You know, I had a landline. And my father, they would ring on the landline and he would say something like Iran and then the phone would go down. <laughs> um, so it would happen. Yeah. And it happens everywhere. Really fascinating discussion. So kind of close it out, advice for female entrepreneurs and kind of in, inspiring and how can people follow you, contact you, et cetera. Well, I'm working on a project now. Uh, it's a, It's an information technology project. And I think that female entrepreneurs just have to keep going i think it, no matter what anybody says it's harder for females just because <laughs> because people expect and that's really what it comes down to you have to just keep fighting and you have to believe in what you're doing and eventually <laughs> it becomes yeah people believe in you you bet you have to believe in yourself first and you have to do writing. How can people contact you? Oh, they contact me. Uh, probably a personal email on is probably easier, given that I am in New Zealand and there's a big time difference. L-U-C-I-A.C-L-A-I-R-E.D-O-R-E at gmail.com. Or you can go to my websites. And um, I have a media company, LCD Media, um, net, and you can contact me there or you'll get other emails from different you know at my personal website um, .co.nz they'll have all the emails there but I think that's easier than because of as I say the time difference we are the first country in the world to get the day all right well uh, thanks for a very fantastic intriguing conversation and um and thanks so much for coming on to the podcast thank you christopher thank you